Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the STEM Everyday Podcast. Welcome to the STEM Everyday Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Chris Woods. Putting STEM into every classroom, every day. Well, thanks for joining us on this episode of the STEM Everyday Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Woods, and today we have special guest, Jason Hubbard. And he is a STEM educator for fifth and sixth grade students at Hull Prairie Intermediate School in Perrysburg, Ohio. Welcome to the show, Jason. Thanks. That's a mouthful, huh, Chris? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I, one one minor note here: Jason is probably my long lost twin brother. Uh, he and I have have met over Twitter, and and since realized from meeting at conferences and different things that that we have so many things in common, which is really pretty incredible when you think about the, the world of Twitter can connect you with your long lost twin brother, right? That's right. We are truly brothers from another mother. Yes. So, so um, again, uh, you can find Jason on Twitter. He's a great follow at JSN Hubbard. And uh, tell us, Jason, how'd you end up becoming a STEM teacher for fifth and sixth graders? Yeah, it was, um, it was actually kind of accidental, and it's accidental. a really fun story to tell. Yeah, um, basically, uh, and I'm going to brag on my district a little bit here because uh, Perrysburg Schools is a fantastic place to work. We, um, and they did not pay me to say that, by the way. Um, Perrys- Perrysburg, here- Ohio. Okay, guys, Perrysburg, Ohio. <laughs> Submit your applications now. <laughs> so, like... Uh, I would say 2003 is when I started working for Perrysburg full-time. I started teaching fourth grade and then I graduated to fifth grade, taught fifth grade for about nine years. Yeah, it was a big deal. Um, And then about um, 10 years in, um, things started to change in the regular classroom. I I kind of felt a squeeze, uh, a little bit locked in by... Um, needing to do certain things with the curriculum. And so as a teacher, I I was trying to make the best decision for the kids and for myself. And I thought um, maybe it's time to do something with tech uh, with teachers because I really enjoy doing that. So um, I applied for um, a job for within the district, kind of like that, and uh, for working with technology and, and the adults in the district. And I did not get the job. And I'm really grateful that I didn't get the job because uh, it it ended up being um, a job for somebody to kind of handle the learning management system for a while. And uh, it turned into something that wasn't quite, you know, what I expected anyways. But through that, um, our curriculum director met with me and she said, Jason, how about we invent a position for you? Wow. And we'll call it STEM. And this was six years ago, we'll call it STEM. Um, we want to do it at the elementary level, which I was very excited about. Oh yeah. Um, definitely. Because I thought that's a great place to start infusing the mindset, the processes and the activities. And, um, and then I asked, well, what standards would you, you know, want me to teach? And she said, well, what standards would you like to teach? There you go. <laughs> the open so, Pandora I, box. Yeah, so, yeah, and, and it was actually fun because I played around with different sets of standards. I did the ITA standards for a little bit, uh, International Technology and Engineering Education Association standards. Okay. Um, uh, and then really landed on the ISTE standards uh, the, that I just absolutely love. Um, and then um, 
she said, uh, what would you like to teach? You know, and I had to kind of do a double take there. Are you serious? And she said, yeah. So basically, um, I taught kindergarten through fifth grade at two elementary schools, uh, 1200 students. Wow. And I would see them once every eight school days. So they would have, they would go to STEM class, just like they went to gym, uh, music and art. Um, but it was only once every eight days. So it ended up being about 25 times a year. That's, each child will get to the STEM class. And that's not enough. That's not enough to, that's just it enough to, to, to wet their appetite, get a kid starting to be excited about STEM and then forget what did I work on eight weeks ago? Yeah, that's exactly right. And so it ended up being a lot of uh, one-off projects. You know, we mm-hmm. would do a project, uh, you know, Hey everybody, here's let's, we're going to try to, um, I read them, you know, the gingerbread man story, but I stopped before the end of the story and said, all right, here's bins of Legos. I want you to design a humane trap to catch the gingerbread man with Legos. That's awesome. And so we would do that. Yeah. And it was great, but it was a, it was a quick one-off 45 minute class period. And then the next time it would be something else. So, uh, we, I would try to do projects that went like six or seven sessions. But when you do that every eight school days, it's like stretched over 10 weeks of school. And oh, it was yeah. really hard to keep kids engaged and excited about the same project. So a lot of trial and error. Um, I found that like some of the best projects were ones that went maybe two or three class sessions. Okay. So that's some, some continuity. So that's some good advice for educators that are maybe working in a district where, where STEM is a special that, yeah, only meets once a week or something like that. Look for one-off projects, look for two or three session projects, but, but you ended up getting to switch more just to fifth and sixth grade. That was last year, right? Yeah, absolutely. And actually before I do, is it okay if I drop some resources and maybe you post them in a link? Okay. So let me just, for those teachers who are, or in that same kind of a position, maybe you're a librarian turning things into a makerspace, or or maybe you are a, a tech specialist teacher and you see all the kids or you see a large percentage of the kids. Yep. Um, a couple of good resources I found. Uh, one of them is EIE.org. Uh, yep. Engineering is elementary.org. And I believe it's out of the Science Museum in Boston. Yep. Um, they have curriculum you can pay for. However, they have an incredible amount of free units. Um, There's probably eight units for third through fifth grade, and there's probably eight or 10 units for sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. And they are absolutely fantastic. Um, I've vetted several of them and done several of them with kids. They're very engaging, and they tackle real-world problems. Um, So I definitely would point teachers that way. And I was going to say on episode 67 of the STEM Everyday podcast, we talked with Dr. Christine Cunningham, uh, who is EIE founder and and works at the museum there. So you can check that out. Very cool. Everybody. Yeah. (laughs) Awesome. So, um, yeah. So, Chris, now I teach at Hull Prairie Intermediate School and it's uh, solely fifth and sixth graders. And the beautiful part about the switch is that uh, these kids have STEM every day for a quarter. Um, so at least it's a concentration of STEM. And here's the other thing is that we are designated as a STEM school. And so uh, realistically, these students are getting STEM in pretty much every class all day long, every day of the school year. So not a lot just, of PBL. Not just stuck in the silo. We've just, we separated STEM into one 
this is STEM time and now everything else is regular time and never they meet. That's right. And, you know, I think that in in schools today, like that's um, that's so key is that let's not take the kids to this space to make. Let's not just feel like we have to take kids to this is where we do science or this is where we do math or this is where we do STEM. Uh, but rather let's push it into all those spaces. I would, I would love to see, it would be a delightful thing to see every teacher have an area of their room that was a designated makerspace area. Exactly. You know, popsicle sticks, hot glue guns and googly eyes in every classroom. (laughs) That's my campaign. That's, that's your camp. Vote for Jason Hubbard. All right. And he's, there you go. At JSN Hubbard, you can, you can vote for him and donate to his campaign. Uh, there you go. For, I'll take as many googly eyes as you want to send. Paid for by Jason Hubbard for for STEM president. Um, so, <laughs> so you're doing you're doing these great projects now with fifth and sixth graders. Uh, you you do some stuff called design thinking. Now we haven't we haven't talked a lot about that on on this show. Uh, so tell us a little bit. What is that idea called design thinking? Yeah. So um, let me just be frank with you, real quick. So design thinking is something that kind of perked my ears on Twitter probably two or three years ago. And I started following a bunch of different folks who were doing design thinking. Um, And I I think that the one thing that jumped out at me about it is it it is, it's a process. It's a way to kind of process a problem. And I think the most important thing for me about it is that it always starts with empathy. It always starts, which of course is a buzzword in education right now, but (laughs) the gist is it starts with the need of the user. So we could build something. um, We, and Chris, you're working at, you worked at summer camp and you did a lot of building and cutting wood and all kinds of stuff and fixing things. But Ultimately, if we're not designing, building, creating, making, fixing things that are useful to yeah. the user, then it's just subpar, it's substandard, right? Um, and so the more we know our user, the better we can make things. And I like to say the more heart we can put into it. Hmm. So at the root of design thinking, that's kind of what sets it apart from just like a design challenge. A design thinking challenge would involve for example, me, or rather a student interviewing another student about their favorite food or favorite pastime. And then as they listen and ask clarifying questions and maybe write some things down, as they're learning about the user, then they set off to, for example, rapidly prototype something that fits that user's needs perfectly. Okay. So, so ultimately, design thinking in a nutshell is starting with empathy, and then it moves into usually some kind of a rapid prototyping process, and then sharing. And the sharing part is not just, hey, I made this really cool thing, and I made it for so-and-so because so-and-so needs this, yep. but it also gives the person on the receiving end a chance to share as well. And from that sharing time, we actually learn more so that we can design even better and iterate even more. Yeah. So So that's it in a nutshell, I think. Yeah. And instead of design, I want to design product X because I want to be rich and famous and those sorts of things. And I want to make a lot of money. It's let's make something for a purpose, a a real need, a real purpose, especially somebody maybe in our own classroom or in our own school. 
that could could use something. So that's right. And and I assume uh, some of those rapid prototypes that you're talking about uh, come from uh, like 3D printing and and laser cutters and and things like that that you use with your fifth and sixth graders, right? Yes. So we're very fortunate to have um, several 3D printers in our lab. Uh, we currently we have four of them. Uh, one of them's a larger one for big jobs, and then we have um, three smaller ones. Uh, and then we also have uh, a laser that, uh, for example, you could put a piece of wood in there that's 24 inches by 18 inches, if you can kind of picture that. Mm-hmm. And um, we use that for several projects. So the the rapid prototyping process, what I love about it is it can involve the lowest of low tech. Mm-hmm. It can it can literally be cardboard and googly uh, eyes and construction paper. That's right, always googly eyes. And <laughs> uh, you can also I don't know if you guys have heard of Make Do tools. Yep. Uh, oh yeah. They're I love cardboard them. construction. Yeah. So that's a fantastic uh, way to make cardboard fit together and stick. Educators, um, if you haven't seen those, it's just M A K E D O Make Do, and you can you can find them find them all over the internet. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and actually, that's going to help Chris and I build our giant cardboard superhero costumes for when we begin the very first cardboard con in wherever we're going to have it. Right, Chris? In our in our own schools, schools all across the country. We're working on it right now. There we go. <laughs> At least we're saying we are right now. Yes. Um, but yeah, so like having a 3D printer. So here's how 3D printing started for me. I want to tell this quick story because I think that it will help uh, a bunch of teachers. If you are the kind of teacher that is not afraid to try something new, mm-hmm. I would highly recommend you by any means possible getting one 3D printer for your classroom or space. And there's several that I can recommend. If you connect with me on Twitter, there's a whole lot smarter people on Twitter you can connect with, but I can show you the ones I know. Um, I have a 3D printer that's a $300 printer. Um, I bought it from the custodian at my school who <laughs> happens to do 3D printing on the side when yeah. he's not custodianing. And so he uh, basically, I had this thing in my lab. Um, and all I did was run 3D prints on it all day long, every day. And I put a piece of plexiglass in front of it, and I would write on the plexiglass, um, cook time and what's baking. And, and I would put, you know, what model I was making and how long it was going to take and how many grams of filament that it used. Because I wanted the kids to start to get an idea of, okay, Mr. Herbert's got this really cool machine. He's making cool stuff every day. And as soon as we walk in the lab, we are racing to watch this thing print. We're racing over there to discover how long it's going to take, when it's going to be done. And the most amazing thing happened was this one 3D printer fueled all kinds of inquiry in my classroom. And I didn't even mean it to. It just became this uh, more than a conversation piece. And so that's why I would encourage the listeners, if you don't have a 3D printer or have access to one, um, if there's any way you can get a small grant or something like that to get one, it's, it, it, I will tell you it's troubleshooting 101 though, because you will have a lot of problems with it. You'll have to figure out how to clear clogs and, and uh, you'll get it. So it doesn't um, adhere to the bed, but that's the most beautiful part is because as you fail, 
trying to figure out how to use it and let your kids join you yeah. and let them fail trying to use it, then it becomes this uh, organism in your classroom that not only makes really cool stuff, but also drives inquiry about material science and uh, manufacturing process, how things are made. It's a fascinating thing. Yeah. And, and I love that idea of just a simple piece of plexiglass in front of it, you know, to keep, kind of keep the kids safe from it. But, but you could write on that and say bake time, how many grams of filament. I, I love that idea. And the kids racing in there, I can imagine them. And, and then they start to see, okay, this is how much it's going to take. So when I, when I come up with my design for my prototype, you know, I can think about all those types of things. It's going to take this long to make. It's going to require that much material. That's right. That's right. And they can think that, okay, this is a real world resource. And you can even say, okay, this roll of filament cost me $30 and that $30 for a thousand grams. So you break it down and it's, you know, three cents a gram or whatever. And then the kids can start to put a money value to the amount of filament they use. And so it's just very easy to work in math, not only that, but also the measurement um, down to the, in Tinkercad, you can design down to the hundredth of a millimeter. So I've had kids design their own Legos that actually interlock and work with real Legos. Wow. And it was, it was like a mini PBL project driven by these two sixth graders who just wanted to do it. So they used a pair of digital calipers and a real Lego. And the challenge was make your own Lego guys because they needed a challenge. And what they came up with was so impressive and by the time they had version 12, uh-huh. they had, they, and they put, they put V1, V2, they, you know, they used a permanent marker. They wrote on each 3D print. They learned something from every single print. And, I, and I'm serious, it only costs a few cents for each Lego brick they print. It costs nothing. And these two boys presented to our board of education what they had learned through this. Yeah. And they actually 3D printed a personalized Lego for each of the board members. So it was just a really cool kind of a shot in the arm for those guys. Yeah. And, and just thinking, I mean, like you said, for that few cents and, and really it's time, time in your classroom, but time well spent. Those kids have a, have a great lesson that's going to push them. And you at your level of fifth, sixth grade, uh, they've got the, all the rest of those years until graduation and, and, and beyond. To, to say, I learned this in Mr. Hubbard's class, and, and that has pushed me now to, to realize I can do amazing things. So, awesome. Um, we're, we're talking with Jason Hubbard, and again, you can follow him on Twitter, at JSN Hubbard. And we're going to come back with part two of the episode with Jason next time on the STEM Everyday Podcast. Uh, just a reminder, subscribe to STEM Everyday Podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Uh, and you can always follow me on Twitter at Daily STEM. And we'll come back with part two of the Jason Hubbard episode on next week's episode. You're listening to this podcast on the ESDAC Broadcasting Network. To find more information about this or other podcast shows, please visit RemarkableChatter.com.